the body is a shell. You are not your body. Your body is not you. Your body is part of you. And unless you stress the shell, you're not really aware of it. And that's mm-hmm. and I, I, I believe that that is, it's our job to, to take care of our bodies and to use them. This is Keep the Mess, Messy Conversations with Messy People, where we have conversations about how we relate to our bodies and go down whatever rabbit holes we find. I started this podcast because I'm a bit obsessed with this topic. I struggle with embodiment myself and wanted to learn about how other people live in and out of their bodies. I figured if I'm interested in these things, chances are that others are also interested. So welcome, fellow obsessives. In this episode, I speak with my friend Jacob. This episode was recorded March 24, 2023. This conversation was a lot. We talk about a number of items that I certainly found uncomfortable and messy, and yet also meaningful and important. I am grateful to Jacob for bearing with me as we talked. We talk about racism, addiction, sexuality, and exploration. Content warnings for talk about racism, transphobia, suicidality, and extended conversations about sex, as well as alcohol and drug addiction. And lastly, I want to remind people that just because I have someone on this podcast doesn't mean I agree with them on all matters, or even many. These episodes are not about facts or saying things perfectly. They are people's stories, their experiences, their processing. Connecting and communicating with ourselves and each other is a messy affair, so I ask for a listening ear and some grace. All right, here is my interview with Jacob. All right. Yeah, well, I I start with my first question, which we were getting into a little bit uh, in the audio test. But um, yeah, the first question I always ask is, how do we know each other? How did we meet? Well, we know each other from sexual recovery, but I don't remember if we met in person or if we met in a Zoom meeting. I don't remember. Mm, We met in person. I don't remember if you were at my first, the first time that I went to that specific gathering, Mm -hmm. but early on, uh, I think I started around Thanksgiving of 2019. Yeah, I remember because I couldn't go to the other one, um, sort of, yeah, the one that I usually go to, and uh, now I've added, now that I, I go to two. But at the time, I was only going to one, and I couldn't go that week, and so I joined. I joined this group, and yeah, either the first or second time, you were there. And I think you'd been going to that one for a while. I had. Yeah, and then everything went on Zoom, and so we've spent more time together on Zoom far more time together on Zoom than we have in person. That's Uh, true. Yeah. Um, I will say that this this is an interview that I feel some anxiety about. Hmm. Why is that? Um, I think it's because when I first met you, I... uh, I felt a little afraid of you. Hmm. 
Um, and looking back, I'm recognizing some of that, some of that was probably racial. Um, a lot of it though, was that you showed a lot of anger. You express a lot of anger and I grew up with a pretty angry father. And so it's like, like poking at all of those like experiences. Um, and, and so I knew that like, I'm like, I need to like express that. I think there have been times where like, that's come up for me. And when I actually interact with you, you are lovely and you've always been like really kind to me. Um, but I know that that, that certainly was like an initial response and that's something that's come up for me a few times. And so I think that's why I had and probably still have some anxiety of like. I think it's worth you giving some thought to the stereotype of the angry black man. Like, 100%. what is it? Um, first of all, I'd say I'd say I'm a lot less angry than I was <laughs> six months ago. Number one, yes. number two, <clears throat> I have virtually never been subject to. I've never hit anybody. I've never thought about hitting anybody. And also, I would say that what's triggering you about my anger is not happening now. And the, the reason I say that is because um, I had to realize that a lot of my anger well, I, I, I think you're referring to my talking about this child that I'm raising that I don't want to raise, that I am angry about. Um, a lot of the things that trigger me are things that happened in my childhood and they're not happening now. Because I said so was the way I grew up. Because I, I said so, you know, and it wasn't open to debate. And children are raised differently now and it seems kind of irrelevant to how I feel about it. And the way, I, the, way I, the way I grew up is not happening now. Mm. And I have to recognize that it's not happening now. Mm. And in my work, I kind of keep <laughs> an angry response. I'm coiled up, just waiting to be mm. unleashed. And nine times out of ten, and nothing ever happens. And I have such... I'm such a high seniority operator, literally nothing happens all day for eight hours at a time. I have to create something to get upset about. <laughs> I mean, it, it took years to, I mean, it took years to arrive at a, at a, it's not like a Zen calm. It's just that I am high seniority and the work that I do, mm. nothing happens and it's amazing. And I have to like find things to get angry about mm. somebody somebody speeds up because they're going to turn in front of me rather than wait, you know. And So uh, I understand, I understand it on some level, this, this angry black male. I mean, I am aware of my physical size mm. and I take advantage of it. Mm. I freely admit that. Like, um, we are supposed to diff diffuse confrontations, not add to them on the bus. And I used to have a three, 
three-step process. If someone's talking loud on the phone, I would. We have an automated announcement. Keep the volume of your handset comfortable for the, those around you. I would do it twice. And if the person did not respond, I'd actually stop the bus and get out of my seat. Mm. I haven't had to do that for a long time. Point being is that I. I get that people are intimidated, and sometimes I use it. <clears throat> mm. So I will admit that. Well, I think we all use the tools, the, ask, we have. the tools we have. Like I certainly use the fact that um, even though I identify as a man, I know that it's been very useful for me to be viewed as a woman in mental health spaces. It has made people feel at ease. The fact that I am short. The fact that I have a soft voice means there is far less likelihood that someone is going to be threatened by me or decide to hit me. Now, that has not always been true. There, there's been a case where I was threatened, um, but that person was really, really unwell. But we all, we all take advantage of that, and I... I think I remember after maybe one of the first, I think it was just like a couple of gatherings in, I realized, oh, I think this is an angry black man thing going on, along with stuff from my father, like to compound it. But um, yeah, how are you feeling after I said that? Um. Partially taken aback, partially unsurprised. Mm. Yeah. Because we are not capable of seeing ourselves as others see us. And half the time, when I have viewed myself as angry or hostile or threatening or forbidding, other people don't see it at all. Mm. Mm -hmm. On On the other hand, my responsibility as a recovering addict is to talk about what I, I won't say causes me to be angry but what I am angry about mm. and uh, I'm sorry I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that 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 that, that um, I'm sorry to I guess learn that that causes you mm. anxiety or discomfort because I wouldn't want to fly <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think, I think what I've kept reminding myself is Jacob has always been so gentle and so welcoming and so friendly with me. And, and actually when I look back on things, a number of people who, who I maybe had an initial fear response to. And and sometimes that initial fear response is absolutely accurate. You know, it's my body telling me something. But other times it is a trauma response or it is from a learned sort of prejudicial response. And I've realized, oh, actually, this person has never actually done anything. And it's coming from stuff that has very little to do with this actual human. Well... <clears throat> I'm, I, I guess I'm reminded of the fact that I I grew up in a small town in, in back east, and there were four black families in the whole town, and it was automatically assumed that we knew each mm-hmm. other, mm-hmm. 
And from a very early age, uh, I felt like an other. And having lived in the in what I got to call passive aggressive homeland of <laughs> Washington State uh, for this time for thirty years, I am accustomed to being the only person of color at most events that I that I go to. Number one, number two, I am unfazed by white people who. Uh, are either intimidated or evidence fear. Like I remember standing at the corner of and and hearing cross standing at the intersection waiting for the light to turn and hearing the door locks of a car close. That's like I'm gonna go over to their car and rob them, you know. So um, I am accustomed to a certain amount of that. Yeah. Yeah, which. Is sad, of course, right? I remember there was this one time where uh, it was it was dark at night, and I was walking home to my place, and I I saw uh, a man who was you know we were going to cross paths, and and I moved away from him, and I remember him yelling back um, something like "racist bitch," and. And I remember in my head making all these excuses of like, well, I, I just saw, I just saw a person. I just saw someone I knew was a man. I didn't even know that this person was black and like all these things. And maybe some of those are like somewhat reasonable, but I don't know. I think that happens too often for it to be coincidental. Right. Mm -hmm. And that he had clearly experienced that a lot. But I, I remember just like that slew of immediate defensive responses in my brain, sort of protecting myself from this title of racist. But, you know, instead of actually being like, well, that is at least partially accurate from my response, the learned response that I, yeah, that I've learned over time being a white person and specifically being a white, female-bodied person to fear black men, right? There's a lot to unpack in that. Oh, yeah, <coughs> yeah. Yeah, sorry, how are you at with all that? Oh, I, you know, um, I think people of color sometimes see every interaction with the world through... through um, of uh, racism, it's one thing that I've that I've learned from living here thirty years. Sometimes, more often than not, customer service is poor, not because you're black, but because the people have poor customer service skills. Mm. Um, I, I think I, I remember going to a, a bike shop and wanting some service, and the customer, the people behind the, the counter were slammed, and they ignored everybody and all they had to do was say, we're slammed. We'll be right with you. And I just took it as poor customer service because I was the only person of color there and I was third in line, not first. And they were treating everybody the same. And people, you know, sometimes people just don't know how to act. So I, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. I got a squeaky chair. <laughs> uh they were treating uh, everyone equally poor, yes. <laughs> poorly. Yes, yeah. 
Mm. Yeah, I think I remember when I when we were talking about you know, you being interested in being on my podcast, I was just very honest about the fact that I was like, you know, there haven't been a lot of black people on my podcast. And I just want to be honest with the fact that like, I, uh, it's, I don't have a lot of black friends. And that's, that's the truth. And I remember you said something which was you know that I think that you grew up in a white area and that you were very used to being the only black person in the room mm-hmm. um, and so I think I remember also saying in our recovery gathering you were almost always the only uh, black man black person in the room not always there was I think one other person <laughs> But the fact that I only, like, I distinctly remember when there was one other person says something, right? But that you were used to this. And I remember just thinking, ugh, ouch. And, and that's that's my response. I don't know if that's your response to that. Yeah, like I said, I've, I've been here for 30 years. And, you know, there are more white people in this area than there are people of color. So given the things that I'm interested in, building plastic models, riding and restoring vintage bicycles, playing klezmer music. <laughs> um, I am more, I am likely to be the only person of color at most of these events that I, that I go to. So I've just, I'm just used to it. In fact, mm. uh, often, you know, when you, when you, when you are emailing somebody or texting somebody, let's suffice to say that if I'm meeting somebody for the first time and they don't have no idea what I look like, I feel obliged to tell them that I'm black so that I don't have to experience their shock or their disappointment or whatever it is they're mm-hmm. feeling. I, I've learned to, to spare myself mm-hmm. that reaction. It's just mm-hmm. an automatic thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we... Um you know, before this, we were talking about, you know, we, we use the tools that we're given. And I think in this case, it's we we build up the habits that protect ourselves, right? Or like, this is the world that you live in, and it may not be ideal, but you know how to prepare for it. You know that white people are going to respond to you in this way. So you just sort of get ahead of it before it happens. Yeah, and then there's that syndrome of, um, let me ask my black friend. (laughs) Well, how do you think, I'm I'm just representing myself, I'm not representing the race. And so, if you you feel obliged to ask me to get a, but you think it's a different perspective, you know, go right ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Part of me is feeling sort of like, ouch, and of like, uh, that is definitely something I would do but then also I've recognized I've taken on the role of being this sort of queer and trans person that people ask questions of like I'm sort of this educator sometimes I get really pissed off at that and I'm just like I'm not no like especially if someone is being more um, hurtful or harmful I'm like, "Mm, maybe I'm done with this. But most of the time I'm like, 
I, I'm all this person has, and, and I want to lead them to ways so that I'm not the only person that they have, but right now, I'm all this person has. And I guess, in my experience, I'm swallowing that and doing the best I can while also trying to like protect myself. It's a struggle, at least for me. I'm like, okay, do I have the energy to do this today? Or if I do this today, am I just going to want to tell everyone to just fuck off forever, right? Yeah. Well, you know, we've talked a bit about how I saw you. How did you see me? Do you, do you even remember? You know, I, I'm pretty sure that you were wearing... Bow tie. Bow tie. And that's very distinctive. Because I said earlier, like myself, you do not wear, at least I've never seen you wear a clip-on bow tie. And I just saw you as a um, gentle, kind person. You know, I think there are ways that I am gentle and kind. And But as we talked, as we were talking about anger, I hold so much anger within myself. And it's something that I've only more recently been starting to recognize. Oh, like, I'm a really angry person. I feel, um, and, and so much the anger I have directed towards myself, right? But yeah, recognizing my resentfulness and my pettiness and my just like rage. It doesn't, it's not apparent, right? If someone just meets me, they're not usually going to think, oh, that's an angry person, right? Mm -hmm. Some people, if they actually hear me talk, are like, okay, yeah, like I can see some of those like violence or things like that. But it's not generally what people will notice. And I think more recently I've been figuring out, okay, where, where, where does this go? Where does my anger go? physical exercise, like boxing, like where does all of this aggression, frustration, rage go? And that is definitely something I'm reckoning with because I know that I can't continue on the way that I have been, which is just self-destruction. And I certainly don't want to do what it's so easy to do, which is when you just squeeze up uh you what is it bottle up you bottle up your anger which is that eventually you harm someone verbally otherwise because you just can't take it anymore <laughs> right so i'm not negating what you're saying it's true it's um it's very important for me to be both of those things i'm just noting right now the complexity of both of us, right? I viewed you as this angry person and actually my interactions with you have been very gentle and kind. And then you view me as this gentle and kind person and inside I know that I'm, I'm full of fury a lot of the time. So just noticing that. You know, there's, there's, particularly when it comes to you know, trans rights and, and protection of trans people, there's a lot to be angry about <laughs> right now. I mean, 
you know, like in Arkansas, they just passed a law that, you know, you're not allowed to use bathrooms that conform to your sense of yourself, let alone what the state might say, um, you know, or the, the, the fact that trans women of color mm. are murdered on a daily basis and they're regarded as people to be discarded, that, that, that it will not be missed. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a lot to be angry about. And I'm reminded of, of the pillow. I mean, I carry anger in my lower back <laughs> and my shoulders. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. And anger turn inward is very destructive. I remember having this massage therapist and I had just started having these tension headaches um, because of my work. Uh, around the time actually that I went, that, uh, that we probably first met, I started having these tension headaches and I remember going to this massage therapist and she said, oh, you know, uh, like looking at my shoulders and she said, yeah, sometimes I wear my shoulders like earrings too, which meant that I had scrunched up them so much that they were near my ears and, ooh, yeah, the level of tension and I still, yeah, lower back, shoulders, definitely where I hold a lot of that. Yeah, and, and um, I don't think anger is necessarily negative i think i think it can be counterproductive but that doesn't mean anger itself is negative mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like what am i angry about are my feelings rational mm. what am i going to do with this anger mm. and physical exercise is great for mm -hmm. anger i mean i'm too tired to be angry i just rode 40 miles on my <laughs> bike so i'm just gonna go take a nap and we can discuss it later Mm -hmm. Yeah, you need some amount of like catharsis. Yeah, I remember coming to a boxing like lesson once, and I think my trainer said something like, uh, "What what kind of lesson sort of do you want today?" And I'm like, "I need to punch things. <laughs> like I need to punch a lot of things because I'm so angry." <laughs> and it is helpful. It is very helpful to be, you know, I wasn't hurting anyone. I wasn't harming anyone. It was. It is a helpful way to express frustration in a physically and I think emotionally healthy way. I'm not. I'm not sure that we're taught what to do with our anger mm. or the fact that we're angry. I, I remember in I learned with my wife when we first started dating that it was possible to be angry in a conversation and keep talking anyway. Whereas my old, my old behavior was like, well, fuck you click. <laughs> um, and then when I was eight, when I learned to talk through anger, I realized that my old response was, well, you made me and nobody makes you, mm. at least nobody made me. Mm -hmm. When you said blank, I felt blank. And I, I learned I learned it was it was possible to like to talk through anger and to understand 
what I was angry about, what I was reacting to, my part in it, and to diffuse that. Mm-hmm. Like I told you in my job, my I'm, I'm supposed to de-escalate, not escalate. And mm-hmm. I will often have a smart-ass response just waiting to unfurl. Like I, I remember I had, I had a previous job. I used to work in the printing industry, and we had this this co-worker who was just always fucking with me. Mm. Out of love. I mean, it was just, you know. And I had a response for him the next morning, and I I walked in, and he just said, good morning. You know, and just, mm. just totally, it's like, I'm not, what am I supposed to do with this answer that I have? <laughs> he just says, good morning. Mm. You know, so, um, you know, and my anger had a ritual. I used to smoke when I was angry. Mm. And... Uh, as an asthmatic, that's not a that's not not really a healthy behavior. So um, I guess I've trained myself that if my, my body is used to diffusing this anger by having a cigarette, mm-hmm. but my brain can short circuit that. So I stopped smoking again. Mm-hmm. Like recently? Yeah. Oh, okay. um, I think I, I haven't actually bought cigarettes for three or four months Mm. Um, but you know I was I'm a never smoked before I went to work never smoked while I was working never smoked until I actually got off work one cigarette while my car was warming up then I would drive home and then maybe have another cigarette and that was it Mm. very measured smoking yeah in fact I don't I know I'm older than you but Used to be about what, fifteen, sixteen years ago. Used to be able to buy single cigarettes, and they were in a and they were in a plastic mm-hmm. tube. Mm-hmm. And I used to buy one cigarette a day, and mm-hmm. smoke one cigarette a day. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I just trained myself to just get by with that little bit of nicotine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not usually what you hear about, but everybody's different in how they. Well, I, I don't know how people can smoke a pack of cigarettes a day. I, I, I just don't. Yeah. I and mean, being in recovery from 22 years of drug abuse and having been clean for 25 years now, mm-hmm. 25, almost, yeah, tw- uh, 25 on January 23rd. Mm. Congratulations. Thank you. I guess I was, I'm, I, I'm more mindful of, my, of myself, self-destructive behaviors now mm. and smoking cigarettes is a self-destructive behavior and uh, I've overcome it today mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. I have a feeling we'll probably get back to some of that but I'll, I'll ask my, my second question which is how would you introduce yourself if, if it was just the way that you want to do it or what do you think is important for other people to know about you um, <clears throat> I'm not from here. I suppose that's the most important thing. And I, 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 I'm getting tired of the weather. I've lived here since 1993. This is the third time I've lived here and I'm getting real tired of the weather. So I guess the first thing that I would say is I'm not from here. You're not from Washington. I'm not from Washington. I love to read. 
I play two musical instruments. I have a lot of hobbies. My hobbies involve me, require me to be home, and I'm on a voyage of self-discovery. I, I, the reason I say that is because I've been married for be 15 years in August, and I'm separated, and I'm, I'm heading for a divorce, and I didn't really foresee that. Mm. And so I'm on a, I'm trying to figure out what my, what that holds for my life now, since I'm supposed to retire next year. Mm. And my retirement was kind of based on being married. Mm. And now I'm going to be divorced and I'm starting over at, you know, 64 so I, heard, I, heard, I heard someone say on the radio on NPR, if I have fewer days in front of me than I have behind me, I don't have time to waste. Mm. And I don't feel that I have a lot of time to waste. And I also, I also have, feel a certain amount of, I guess I want people to know that I'm, that I'm on a, I'm on a, a journey <laughs> of inquiry. Mm. I'm trying to, trying to figure some stuff out. I, at the, at the risk of, of challenging faith or spirituality or belief. Mm -hmm. um, I used to believe in an afterlife. I no longer do. Mm. I think this is it. I think we are all destined to be a photograph on the wall. Who's that? Oh, that's my father. He died 10 years ago. Mm. And I want to leave some, some something behind, some mm. proof that I existed, some proof that I mattered, some proof that I contributed something to something. Mm. Other than propagating, mm. and that you know, I'm going to live my life to the fullest I possibly can. Mm. I guess I want people to know that. Mm. There's just there's so much there. There's a lot of a lot of different things. I I think I found it fascinating that your first sort of response was that you're not from here. <laughs> Where are you from? I, well, see, the reason I say that is because I'm from Massachusetts. Left Massachusetts when I was 12. I moved around a lot as an adult. And I, I've i been here for 30 years. And before that, I was in Chicago for a decade. And I live in the Northwest. I think primarily now because I have children. Mm. I think that if I didn't have children, I'd probably move somewhere where it rained less. I'm, I'm really starting to get... I had, a, I had a girlfriend in Chicago who had seasonal depression. This is before. And she used to sit in front of these lights. And mm -hmm. I thought it was bullshit. <laughs> and I remember when I moved here, moved back here. And there was a, a period where it rained every single day for two or three weeks. I said, okay, I get it now. I'm depressed. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm getting the sparing of the weather. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm tired of it. I'm, I'm tired. I'm tired of all the rain. Um, which is kind of ironic given that I lived in Chicago for a decade and lived in New England where it snowed all the time. It doesn't really snow here. In fact, it, I think it, it used to snow more and now it just really doesn't. Hmm. At least not in my experience. Hmm. Hmm. But uh, yeah, so I, I lived in five different cities, spent years of estrangement 
from my family. Not, I mean, let me clarify. Not maybe estrangement where my father was concerned, but just distance between myself and my siblings and my father and my mother. I also have ADD mm-hmm. and I have a very short attention span and it's kind of how my brain works. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It can be exhausting. Yeah. I, you were just mentioning your father there and I was just noting to myself when you were you know, pointing at my paint, painting and you were saying that you'll you'll basically one day be a picture on the wall. We're all going to be pictures on the wall and be like, my father died. <clears throat> my father died 10 years ago. And I'm remembering that your father died last year. Yes, um, July 31st. So, yeah, it's not all that far from it being a year. No. Were you still estranged? Yes. In fact, uh, I have a uh, non-disparagement, non-disclosure agreement. I can, I, I am not, I cannot say much about my relationship with my father, unfortunately. Let mm-hmm. it suffice to say that uh, I had no contact with him in the last eight years of his life mm-hmm. until the day before he died. I didn't, I hadn't spoken to him or seen him for eight years, mm-hmm. um, and he was on his deathbed, and he was uh, heavily medicated and in and out of consciousness but i i basically said anything everything i needed to say to him from my perspective eight years ago so but we were asked to be to come to his his deathbed so yeah did you even know he was dying Mm, no but i mean he was 88 so yeah oh and this is that jumping around thing the reason, the reason that I talk about um, living a full life is, okay, my father was 88 when he died. My grandfather was 90. My great-grandfather was 93. The point being, I'm, 60, I'm 63. I have a reasonable, expect- reasonable expectation of living another 25 years. So what am I going to do with that time? Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I don't see anything in how I lived before that's prepared me for how I'm going to be living, i.e. a single with a, a, a 12-year-old, which is another story. Um, have you read, read anything, by read, read Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking? I have never read Stephen Hawking. Well, he, Stephen Hawking says that a belief in science and religion are not incompatible. And if there was a creator, mm. it seems like the creator created the universe and then basically left it alone. Deism. Yes. What is, what, well, I said yes, but... Oh, that's the belief of uh, deists that God created the world and then uh, left. Went and got some cigarettes. Took a break. Took a break. Well, the... You read Hawking and, and, and Hawking, you know, I am terrible at math, but Hawking takes some very, very complex math mm-hmm. and simplifies it in a way that a lay person can understand. And 
like the idea that the light that we're seeing in the sky has been traveling for millions of years. And if you look at the structure of the universe, everything has a lifespan. Mm. Solar systems, planets, stars, black holes. The, the, the point being, if there is a tragic dimension to being human, I suppose that no matter how well or how poorly you've loved what you have created, we die. Everything dies. And I don't know that it's sad mm. or happy or anything. It just is. Mm. Yeah, well, what you know about me is, you know, I definitely believe in an afterlife. I do know I do know that. Um but you know, I think I've been learning. It's been a growing edge for me to be able to hold what I believe and not feel that I need to defend it, right? It's going to stand whether or not <laughs> I say anything, right? Um um for me. So I I do believe in an afterlife, but as you're talking what I'm thinking about, something I love about being in the Pacific Northwest. When I go to parks, what I see all the time are these trees that have fallen or like a, a stump that is disintegrating, right? Usually those pine trees and that are disintegrating into this like sort of sawdust. And you're seeing these, these little new trees that are growing out of it. Sometimes not the same type of tree at all. It's a completely different type of tree. And I think I love seeing that life coming, that sort of resurrection style of life coming from death. That yes, this tree has died, but there's the very being of that dead thing is now being used to create something new. Um, so that was just what was coming to mind for me. I have a question for you. Yeah. And that is unconnected or disconnected from a belief in an afterlife, do you believe that this is the only planet in the universe <laughs> that has life? Oh, uh, probably not. I mean, I don't know, but like, I definitely like, I think there probably is other life. And I don't know if we'll ever interact with it, or at least in this lifetime, if we'll ever interact with it. But I guess it seems a bit wild to me that there wouldn't be other life, right? Mm -hmm. um, or that we would be the only galaxy or, you know, universe. And I, some of that's because like, I'm very imaginative. I love fantasy and, you know, sci-fi. And I saw that. Yes, yes. Uh, I like weird shit. And I mean, I think it would be so hard because we like to interact, right? Because we already know that it's so difficult to interact internationally. Like I've grown up in other cultures and it's wonderful. I think it's so important. It's also hard. Interracial marriage, um, sorry, actually, eh, that also has its complications, but I mean international marriage. 
intercultural marriage is tough. Beautiful thing, but it's tough. And then thinking about interacting with like an alien species that doesn't even like look remotely near, like close to us, like that'd be wild. I think it'd be cool, but I think it'd be wild. Did you ever see that? I'm not sure for Star Trek Deep Space Nine, whichever one was, but there was there was this life form that traveled from host to host, mm. and I, number one, Picard, <laughs> his his number one, the 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 first the entity, oh, the entity was 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 dating Doctor Crusher. That's right, the entity was dating Doctor Crusher, and first it was in number ones, it was in a male body. Mm-hmm. And then it was in a female body, mm. and she couldn't handle that. Mm. I guess the point the point point being is that you know, on your top topic of inter, you know interracial or international people are horny <laughs> 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 and curious, and that's that's one of the I think that's one of the best things about being human. Horniness will always bring people together. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean people, people are, are, are curious, mm. you know? Um, you know, because I saw, I saw some documentary that, that, I guess, purports to prove that Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal interbred. Mm. And to me, that's, that's fascinating. Two separate hominid species coexisting at the same time, mm-hmm. and yet one died out. Mm. And, you know, Cro-Magnon became Homo sapiens sapiens. Hmm. Yeah, I think curiosity is so important to humanity. I think it's probably led humanity to where we are today, right? For better or for worse. For better or for worse. Mostly for worse. <laughs> well, not mostly, but often. Yeah. Yeah, I know there's like, there's sort of the classic understanding of the creation, you know, the creation Bible story, you know, of that causing the fall and blah, blah, blah. And then there's... There's other ideas where it's like, well, you know, Eve was curious and and wanted knowledge and knowledge isn't bad. And I don't really know what I think about like these ways of viewing it, but I am very curious about them. <laughs> like I find them fascinating. Curiosity. Speaking of that, you know, um, the reason we did normally we see each other weekly and we yeah. didn't see each other. Thursday because I was actually at a um, ENM ethically non-monogamous mm-hmm. um, board game event, hmm. which was really curious. Hmm. Really curious because because you know I have been coupled virtually all my adult life. I I, th- I think the longest I have not been coupled in thirty years is probably. Six months. Mm. I think I'm, I'm, I'm just accustomed to being coupled, mm. and uh, I feel a little burned mm. in my experiences of of coupledom recently. And I think that I do not want to be coupled. Mm. And in fact, I don't even think I want to be monogamous. For a period of time, and that's why I started this that exploration. Mm. It, was, it was very interesting. I mean, it was a it, this meeting was in a, a game house or game room, and we mm-hmm. played board games. And 
It was interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I... So that sounds kind of random, but... No, I don't think it is random. And, you know, I think... I think these are, are going to... These things, alien species, non-monogamy, are going to come in here. Um, and you can feel free to go to them right away. But, like, yeah... What is like? What has your relationship with your body been? What is your relationship with your body? And I guess because we're talking about this specifically, like how is this being burned and being in a couple and not being monogamous now? Like how does all of that like play into all that good stuff? Hmm. I think historically, I have gravitated in relationships with women who had something that I thought that I lacked. And I have, I have concluded that the idea that I lacked something is a story. And I, I have, I have, a, I have a, a history or legacy of trading a certain amount of autonomy for stability. Mm. And as, as a recovering drug addict, my addiction did not stop. Or my addictive pattern, my addictive behaviors did not stop when I stopped using drugs and alcohol to change the way I feel. Mm. And as, as, as somebody who was sexually active from the age of 15, there, were, there was a number of years when I, was, when I was most comfortable expressing myself sexually, specifically in, in the 30 years before I moved to, I would, it, it's kind of an exaggeration, but I, 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 sometimes I feel like all I did was fuck. That was mm. just it. Mm. Um, that was the only way that I knew how to express myself. Mm. That, I, you know, for me, for me, drug and alcohol addiction and sexual compulsion, which at some point became addiction, uh, went hand in hand. In fact, I don't think I've ever been sexually intimate with a man except when I was under the influence. I, I, mm. I, like I said, I, I've been clean for 25 years. I don't think I've, I, I, I've, I have not had sex with a man sober. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which is another thing to unpack. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly know that there are people, you know, who are now in sexual recovery who said, yeah, I mean, I have, you know, as, as someone who is a man, I've had sex with a man, I've had sex with men, but it was only in the midst of addiction. It was never, and it was only like in desperation, essentially, and not with any interest of like actually having a relationship with this person. And it was often like in this circumstance demeaning, right? And would not identify as gay or bisexual. And so like the the human being is just a fascinating, you know, creature. And we, I think I'll just end it there. Like the human being is a fascinating creature. And I think you've explored quite a bit of that and what that means. Yeah, you know, um, so much of my behavior in sexual relationships with men has been rooted in shame. Mm. 
Mm. Um, like you know, everyone's everyone's path is different. But I remember, I, school is different now. Mm. There used to be junior high school. I don't know if junior high school still exists, but when when I was in junior high school, my recollection was that was the eighth and ninth grades, and then tenth, eleventh, and twelfth was high school. Mm. Well, when I, when I was in um, junior high school, I have had this art class. And the teacher played a played uh, uh, this this is what this is 1973, 74, 75, something like that. Played a, a David Bowie video in the class to to get to, to accompany what we were doing, and it was David Bowie as Ziggy Stardust. Mm, yeah, yeah, and red so, hair. Yeah. Well, this this video was black and white. Oh, like, okay. Oh, hmm. He's really attractive. Mm. So I'm gay, right? Or, you know, because at least it was a, a starting point of inquiry because I, I, I remember um, in New England some kids playing doctor <laughs> in the garage of a neighbor's house, my brother among them, and I wasn't invited in or allowed to participate. I, you know, so I had no idea what was going on. And then and then then we had a, some neighbors who moved in, and I don't know how much you remember. You were, you ever heard of a, a, a Sunday comic called Prince Valiant? Mm-mm. No. You ever heard of a of a Prince Valiant haircut? Kind of in in, in, in from the standpoint of a twelve year old or eleven year old, the hairstyle could be called androgynous. Okay. And I, I, remember, I remember, I remember we had we had a, a neighbor, he, and he had a Prince Valiant haircut. And I didn't at that time. Um, I was beginning puberty, and I, in retrospect, I realized I was I was attracted to him. But mm-hmm. as, 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 as as soon as I saw the David Bowie video, um, I just started having really elaborate mm-hmm. fantasies. I like I remember we had a neighbor who had a. Uh, an indoor pool mm. and I had some very very elaborate fantasies you know three or four boys mm. interlocked um, but you know at, at the same time um, girls 14 15 my fantasies were 50 50 mm-hmm. you know but I was I was I remember I was so shy I remember it would, it would take me um, Three weeks, build up the nerve to walk up to a girl and say hi, and then I never talk to her again. Mm. Like I remember, I remember when I was in the eighth grade. You know, you, you, you talk about having an angry parent. Well, my father was not so much angry as he was like aloof mm. and just, just to me, a menacing presence. And um, I remember, so I'm really dating myself. There's a band called Blood, Sweat, and Tears. In the 1960s, and they did, they did the song. Anyway, I remember I asked this girl out at a dance. Asked her to be my girlfriend. I remember I kissed her. Never spoke to her again, mm. ever, and um, carried this shame around only until very recently. And and I decided to let myself off the hook when I realized, well, the reason I never heard from her is because she didn't know what to do either. Mm. Neither of us knew what to do. So 
you know, and, and I, I didn't, I, I had an older brother that didn't occur to me to talk to him. Okay. I asked her out, what do I do now? Or the, the, the this other, there was a, the town that I grew up in, we had a big field and I had asked this girl, we, we, we were going to meet at the field and talk about going out with boyfriend and girlfriend. And I chickened out and I, I, I never met her. In fact, I remember driving driving by in a car with the kid next door with the Prince Valiant haircut, and I saw her storming out of the park. I never spoke to her again. Mm. You know, and I had no idea what I was supposed to do. Mm. Um, and then, and then, 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 then when I did, then when I, when I did, when I discovered marijuana, which for me was the ultimate social lubricant, mm. that's when I was off to the races, mm. <laughs> so to speak, with you know fucking my way through art school and my whole decade in Chicago. But yeah, regardless of gender, I was primarily expressing myself sexually. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I, I remember that I didn't think I had anything else to offer mm. other than sex. So I, 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 was, I was fairly adept but I, I, I had a, I had several. Um, there, you can have um, easily penetrated bound. I had inappropriate boundaries with my parents. I had partners in common with both of my parents, which is not mm. correct. Not as it should be. Mm. And I, 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 in my early recovery, I used to brag about that kind of thing. And only now do I realize how damaging mm. it is, it was to my sense of self and how it kind of created, it created a, a template for not being very good at being monogamous, mm. which is which is which is why I've concluded that I think the the, the world is better off with me being not being in mono, in monogamous relationship, and and um, that's why I, this is one reason I gravitated to this ENM because I guess the idea is that you are not going to be monogamous and you're going to be open about it, and um, I haven't quite cracked that nut because as a, as an as a even in recovery from drug from from drug and alcohol addiction at 25 years i am accustomed to having a secret life dr jekyll and mr hyde you know mm-hmm. you know well if 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 i'm totally honest you know i'm not going to be accepted so i might as well just you know just mm-hmm. just keep this over here yeah. and if nobody knows about it there's no harm no foul that so i remember when i like early on into my sexual recovery, uh, you know, I was going through a lot of like mental health stuff and I was also recognizing gender stuff going on. And I remember, you know, I was becoming more and more suicidal. And looking back now, I replaced my obsession with my addiction with obsessively figuring out ways of completing suicide or how to sneak around certain barriers that I had. Like I had, um, 
I had accountability software on my computer, which would alert someone uh, actually not just for sexual things, but also for suicidal things. I learned that early on. So I looked up like a suicide hotline and somebody had checked in with me and was like, how are you, how, how are you doing? So I remember being like, okay, I can't look up stuff online. I, and like, it became this whole thing. And also it was something that was secret. And I think like the, the need for something to be obsessive about and for something to keep as a secret was huge. So I, I just, I resonate with that particular feeling. Accountability software, Instagram, Flickr, Pinterest. <laughs> that's how I got around accountability. That's how I got around accountability software. Yeah. I'm not trying to give any 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 no. handy tips. Oh, to, I, to I specifically I specifically chose something that was not blocking. So I had no idea when it was when an alert went off. Oh. Which is the best way to do it actually. It just means that something can set up an alert and also they couldn't just look through whatever it is. So this is actually why it worked for me. And also because I had a couple people on it. And because I was not using it as my sole um, way of recovering, it was supplementary. Because I did, I used something to help me out before, and I just got around it, and I just lied, and so I knew that that alone was never going to save me. But anyway, yes, no, I, <laughs> I understand the workarounds most definitely. Yeah, well, the the, the accountability software sent a report. To two different people, you know, and I'm not sure how helpful that is. <laughs> I mean, um, mm. the thing about recovery, sexual recovery as opposed to drug and alcohol recovery for me is it was pretty clear to me that I was going to die. Mm. Um, if I did not change the way I was acting, mm. um, I needed to find a find a find a new way to lo- to live. But when it comes to sexual recovery, I had repressed so much that it it, it felt like the whole goal was to keep my impulses in check, let alone not even, let alone not explore them. Mm. And so my recovery now is examining. Overtly, what I was examining covertly, mm. trying to discover if the behavior can be done in a safe and non-exploitative, non-addictive mm. way. Mm-hmm. And if it can't, then I can't do that. Mm. If that makes any kind of sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I think we've talked a little bit about that before. And, and I think I understand that to some extent as well and as you were talking about non-monogamy so for me uh non-monogamy certainly makes me uncomfortable um especially with the way that i grew up um but i think also now as someone who has been trained in mental health and also like you know has my own stuff going on the the concern that I have is uh, 
I guess actually what I was saying earlier about like the difficulty of communication between people and like with an alien species, it would be like, <laughs> you know, so difficult is I find it so hard to communicate with one partner and we like have miscommunication like all the time and we, it's so tough. And then how do you do that with multiple and how do you do that in a way that is kind to everyone and respectful of, you know, perhaps like pasts that have had like un unboundaried relationships and stuff like that. That's what I wonder about. And that's what I think about as you're talking about this. Like, how do you, at this point, how do you do this in a way that is caring for yourself and caring for the others around you? Well, Claire, you know, I, I have a couple of uh, what, truisms, maxisms, maxims. Yeah. I don't take a relation, relationship advice from misogynists. Mm. And um, one thing I've learned, I should not be taking advice about my vintage bicycles from somebody who has more than 100 of them. The point being, <laughs> the point being is, that, is that my misogynist friend has been profoundly and deeply discarded, discarded by his marriage to the, to the extent that he mm. almost... He doesn't date, but the thing that he told me that was of value, and I think he was right, he said, you know, when you, you're getting divorced, you're separated, you probably need to spend the bulk of your time alone. Mm. So when I say non-monogamous mm. or ethically non-monogamous, what I really mean is not attached. Mm. Um, okay. I would like to avoid repeating some past mistakes. Mm. And also, I, I am I am a lot older than my wife. Mm. And we're separating, we divorced. And when I started looking around on, you know, I, I never, my initial attempts at, at, at dating on the internet were have been very fruitless. I have found it difficult to have to find non-exploitative, with one with one with one notable exception, and that's Tinder. Uh, um, every other app that I've tried, there's always been some exploitative. Make a long story short, I actually didn't. The story that I was telling myself is that I'm too old to, to be dating. I'm not lovable, mm. and I have found that to not be the case. And I'm flattered, mm. but maybe it's a function. Well, I am fairly adversely impacted by my ADD because I have hypertension. I can't take stimulants like Ritalin or whatever mm. for ADD. And I also had uh, four concussions before the age of 12. And I started using drugs when I was 15. And so I feel that the combination of using drugs at a very early age and having had Four concussions. Mm. They didn't have a. They, they didn't have a um, ADD diagnosis when I was a kid. Yeah. What's the, what's the point of this? The point is, I have a very short attention span, mm. and sometimes I will make a, a resolve to do something, and then I forget. Mm. Like I'm going to meditate tomorrow, and I forget mm. to meditate. Or I'm going to make a list of things that need to be done, 
and I forget to make the list. Mm. So, um, see, see, I, I've, I see, I've, I've already forgotten what I'm talking about. Because, no, I mean, the, the, you know, the medication that I take for my ADD, I, I think it's it's kind of undercut by the my living situation, living with a person with I mentioned having hoarding behaviors, and you cannot live with a person with those behaviors without being impacted yourself. Mm. And I need to change that situation. But the, 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 the primary reason for me being uncoupled is because I think the most important relationship that I can have is with myself. Mm. And I also have uh, four bio- three biological children and one adopted child, all of whom seem to need me. Mm. A lot. And it takes a lot of energy. And I also have a very physical job. So just because I'm accustomed to being coupled and used to being coupled doesn't necessarily mean it's the best thing for me at this point in my life. I mean, um, I am not opposed to it in the future, Mm -hmm. but I'm really resistant. You, have, you do have a relationship with someone. Yeah, I, I, I did. Have, I was trying to juggle mm. several. That's also that. That's a behavior that that seems to be independent of my addiction because I was I was juggling numerous mm. relationships when in my active addiction and mm. up until I up until I got married, I was having multiple relationships. In fact, I, I remember one saying, "I'll take drama." over nothing over nothing at all anytime and now mm. it's now it's the, now it's the opposite i would like as little drama in my life as possible mm. Mm. i just heard as you were talking about you know you had multiple concussions growing up and you were taking you know a number of drugs and you know talking about the problems of like exploitation like within sexual experiences and just sounds like you were beaten up slash beating yourself up a lot. <laughs> like your your body and mo- and emotions just like took quite a hit with all of that. Hmm. Yeah, you know, um, I used to be. I was one of those <laughs> kind of drunks. You know, and, and at some point, what I mean is that I would always drink until I made an ass of myself. You know, um, I actually, I was, I was in Chicago once. I was so drunk that I actually walked off the subway platform, the elevated, elevated platform onto the tracks. And it's at least, it's at least this much of a drop Hmm. onto the um, tracks. To tell our listeners, because they can't see that. uh... Three feet, four feet. Four, yeah. four, four feet. Yeah. And, you know, the, 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 the elevated takes its power from the third rail. And I simply went from walking on the platform to walking on the railroad ties. If I had fallen over, I would have been electrocuted. Mm. And um, I kept drinking for... I remember I actually woke up at the end of the line and the, 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 the tr- motorman made me get out of the train. Mm. I kept uh, that kind of drinking. I, I kept doing for another, another decade until until I 
discovered stimulants and realized that I preferred being wired to being sedated. Mm. So yeah, I think it's accurate that I did a, 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 a lot of... I've been seeing a therapist, and my therapist thinks that I might have a learning disability mm. from the concussions that I, mm. that I had before 12. You know, and I, I don't think I understood... It wasn't, there used to be a, a, a place here called the Java Zone. It's gone now, so I don't really have any, any problem mentioning it. I, I used to go to recovery meetings there, and this, this fellow person came in with some young people, and I realized for the first time the, that you know, your brain is not fully formed. It wasn't until you were 18, 19, 20, 21, and I started using drugs. Mm-hmm. And alcohol, when my brain was not fully formed, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I already had the predisposition, I already had the ADD, which wasn't diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did do a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if I ask, how did you get the concussions? First one uh, slid face down down a slide, and I clouded with a rock. That was in the ground. That was the first. That was the first one. Second one, I fell off a bunk bed onto a concrete floor. Ugh. Top top of the bunk bed. Mm-hmm. Third one, I slipped on black ice and hit the back of my head on the asphalt. And the fourth one, I rode somebody else's bicycle into a tree and stopped the impact with my head right against a tree. And so those were all before I was twelve. Wow, that's a lot of concussion. Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm glad you're functional. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, and you know, impact of uh, alcohol and drugs on the body, on the brain, the effect of that sexual addiction can have on you as well. Yeah, I have, I have, I have a. Um... You know, when, when, when we were talking about um, spirituality and belief in an afterlife, mm-hmm. I, used to have, I used to have what I called my ISP. It's before I claimed my instinct of self-preservation. Because I, I used to be able to party all night and have to work the next day. And I could lie on my back and lightly doze but not fall completely asleep. The moment I turned over on my stomach, out. Mm. Just like that. Uh, and I always felt that my my ISP saved me from some of my, some of the more harmful behaviors, like um, uh, ISP. Can you describe what what is that again? My instinct of self preservation okay, didn't stop go. me from doing really well. It didn't stop me, but <laughs> <laughs> um, see, I was a waiter in Chicago for like six years, and this was this was back when you could actually number one. The three martini lunch. A biz- if 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 a businessman was hosting another businessman, he could write it. But business person was hosting another business person. They could write off the expense, and so mm. people were just getting sloshed mm. at lunchtime. So I, I I worked a double shift. I worked lunch, and then I'd be off a couple hours, and I worked dinner. And at that time, you could drink at the bar before you before you got your tips. Mm. See, we had a we had a. Team system, front waiter, back waiter, bus boy. Front waiter sold the food and would sell wine and desserts. 
back waiter delivered the food. So I was a back waiter. I only we only made like four or five percent less than the front waiter, and I could leave as soon as I had sold my last dessert. So then I'd go to the bar and and drink, and it was my birthday, and I had a I just scored an ounce of weed, had an ounce of weed in my backpack, and I sat at the bar and I had two one fifty one rum and cokes. It was what, what is this like an eight ounce glass? Yeah. So an eight ounce glass. Probably this much of it was rum, and I had two of them. So half, more than half of it. Yeah. yeah, so I had two of those while I was waiting to get tipped out. Got tipped out, went outside, and smoked a, smoked a couple of joints. Mm-hmm. And this was a, a bunch of us used to ride our bikes to work. And um, so we were all high, drunk, riding our bikes. And this busboy... Jorge, it's been like 40 years, so I don't have any problem saying his name. Yeah. I'll never see him again. Jorge takes off, and I said, you son of a bitch. And, it's really an, an associate. So I chased him down, and I'm feeling really, really good, and I'm driving, riding through Lincoln Park, and I'm riding with my head down, and I look up, and there's a woman in the crosswalk, and I swerve to my left, and she swerved to her right. I hit her. Flew over my handlebars, landed on my face, broke my two front teeth, and my son, oldest son, who's now 37, hadn't hadn't even been born yet. So I was, I drank for, he was born in 1986. So I, from 1986, to 1995 and finally got clean. I just kept, you couldn't tell me that I had a problem. Mm. In fact, um, my closest friend from high school, who's also in recovery, who has nine more years, I remember smoking crack cocaine right in front of him Mm. and watching, looking at pornography and Mm. you could not tell me that I had a problem. So so deep was my denial. And in a lot of ways, I, I, I mean, one of my favorite things used to, well, just, just to clarify, I, I spent the entire, my entire six years as a waiter, if, probably 90% of the time I was in Chicago, high as a kite, mm-hmm. mostly marijuana, Mm-hmm. Occasionally cocaine, um, and cocaine never really made much an impression on me. In fact, I remember doing freebase with some people all night. I think I was seventeen, sixteen, seventeen. Once again, made no impression. Fast forward to I moved here in nineteen ninety two. Guy who I lived, who I worked worked with in in, in um, Chicago, moved there before me. He came to, came to pick me up one night, and he had this old black man with him, which I thought that was very strange. And we, within five minutes of leaving the house, my friend says, "Have you ever taken? Have you ever tried crack cocaine?" I said, "No." I said, "Would you like to?" I said, sure, you know. And um, I was hooked before I exhaled. Mm. As soon as I exhaled, I was like. Boom. This is my drug. And it's really short-lasting. 
Yeah, that was that's 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 the the problem with it. Yeah, the problem with it, and uh, I, I guess it, it ties into my sex addiction is is that um, I wasn't really interested. I would I had no problem looking at pornography, but I wasn't really interested in sex. I just mm. wanted to smoke crack cocaine and look at pornography. Then um, what happened was I I actually got so paranoid that I couldn't enjoy it, and I I, I went from in less than a year, because I went from smoking on Friday nights to smoking Friday and Saturday night to smoking Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night to being fired from my job yeah. and smoking crack cocaine seven days a week mm. um, and being out all night. At some point, I just I just stopped enjoying it because I I, I just it produces this psychosis and par extreme paranoia when you can be the only person in your house locked in the bathroom with a with a with a towel underneath the door to let any prevent any fumes from coming out and be convinced that the police are coming to arrest you. Mm. Uh, so I had been scoring weed from somebody and they I was introduced to uh to meth and um it had it had the had the opposite effect I had where whereas um I was not interested in sex other than looking at pornography I had priapism I had erections and it would not go down meth is really associated with sexual addiction and I never I never shot it. I only I only smoked it, but I, I I went I went basically by 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 the time I got clean I was actually living with with this woman who was supplying me uh, meth and um, I had no idea how dire my circumstances were until I got clean and I couldn't ignore. Mm. She said she had originally got it to help her help her clean the house, <laughs> you know, mm. and mm -hmm. that house was not clean. <laughs> that house was the house was not clean. Yeah, meth is probably one of the drugs that I'm. I've had clients because I worked in like with people with severe uh, mental illness, psychosis most of the time, and I think the primary drugs that yeah, meth meth was I think a, a huge one. It was a huge one for people that I worked with, and that one it's really tough to get past the cravings for that one i've heard like it takes like the physical cravings alone How, what was your experience getting off of that one um there, there used to be a uh a, a recovery place for the lgbtq plus um i i plus um community called now long gone and I went there, and they uh, they filled out this questionnaire about my drug and alcohol use. And they said, "Well, based on how you fill out this questionnaire, you've got a mid-level chemical dependency, and you should abstain from all drugs and alcohol." And I said, "Okay, I'll stop smoking crack, and I will stop um, meth. I'm gonna keep smoking weed, and I'm gonna keep drinking." Yeah. And I did for the first. Because mm -hmm. it was, it was, this was an outpatient. It wasn't an inpatient mm -hmm. treatment. And um, 
I had a couple, a couple, I don't know much you know about crack cocaine, but when crack cocaine is yellow rather than white, I don't know how it's cut, but it's much more potent. Right. And depending on the size of the rock that you heat, your ears will ring when you exhale. Mm. And somebody in, in, in treatment was asking about, they were a pill person, that they didn't get the appeal at all about crack cocaine. And a couple of us started telling them, and in the, in the middle of my ear started to ring. Mm. There's also, at that time, there's a kind of a, um, a cinnamon mint that tasted like crack cocaine. Mm. So um, there is a, a, a recovery store. And I remember I was there with somebody and I realized, this was after I realized the damage I had done to my brain. I realized that I actually preferred to be sober, clean and sober. Mm. And basically I've been, I've been, I had four one day relapses and I've been clean and sober ever since for 25, you know, 25, going on 20, 25 and a half years. But I did a lot of damage. Like I, I remember, um, it used to be a thing, a hundred mile bike ride, and I smoked crack all. This is my early recovery, <laughs> really early. I smoked crack all night the night before I drove up and did that century. And I had to get off my bike because I was actually having hallucinations. Mm. I think at like the halfway point, so I didn't quite, didn't quite get it yet. But yeah, at some point, I used to score and uh, this person I bought from, she used to carry it in her mouth mm-hmm. in um, saran wrap that was either blue, either green or blue. She got to buy a rock and she, um, and I was always so too paranoid to, to buy it. And that's why I, that, that was why I kept smoking marijuana because otherwise I'd be too nervous. Yeah. But it, at some point I transitioned from sedatives to being wired. I'm not sure exactly. That's all right. I was going to ask, what was it? Because you were saying that, you know, n- you did not see that there was anything wrong. Nobody could have told you this, that, you know, you were not going in a great direction. Mm-hmm. What was it that told you, I-, I can't do this anymore with the stimulants? Well, the intervention was made on my behalf, number one. And number two, after I'd been going to the like I said, somebody came in with a, with a group of kids, and I, I realized then how much damage I had mm. done to myself before my brain. I mean, I started using when I was 15. Mm. And so I used for 22 years. I was you know, 37 when I got clean. And then, and then having that moment where I realized that I preferred being clean and sober. Mm. And it, it stuck. Mm. So yeah, a combination of intervention, other people sort of being like, and then you also recognizing that you wanted something different, something better. Yeah, because a belief that I have is that external motivators can maybe be helpful to sort of start things up, but it's only internal motivators that are gonna get you through recovery. It has to come from you for it to actually work. Right. You have to be ready for it. We, we, we were having that talk earlier about alcohol, and I'm pretty sure I did not finish that story. And basically, I went, I went to this restaurant 
with 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 a, with a woman, and we didn't make a reservation. The only place we could only place that we could sit was the bar, unless we wanted to wait. And so mm -hmm. I sat in the bar, and I hadn't been in a bar, I don't know, thirty years, mm -hmm. and I couldn't I couldn't remember the good times. I mean, there was, there, was a, there was a period where I was a social drinker before I became a problem drinker. Mm. And um, I saw I saw Benedictine and B&B. &B and when it came to the Benedictine and B&B, &B, I, I remember stealing some from a stealing from, from the liquor cabinet of a, of, a, of a family friend who trusted me. Mm. When I looked at this other liquor, I, I, rem I remembered like like Jameson's. I used to like to I used to like to have a. What is that stout beer? Guinness. Guinness, yes, room temperature Guinness, and a shot. Hmm. And that's when I was seeing this guy who was a musician, and because I was deeply, deeply self-loathing and hating, I had to be drunk. Like I said, I never had, never, never had any, and never had any interactions with men unless I was drunk. Hmm. Um, but you know, I have, I have no illusions. That that I would die if I, if 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 I went back to my old behaviors, I would die. I don't I don't don't have any illusion about that because I loved it, and I I I I think that not enough. There is a ritual. There's a ritual with scoring. In fact, this is very this is very kind of very weird. But in in in, in treatment, they said you know okay there is there is a devotion to the getting and using, mm -hmm. and that's love. And you need to replace that devotion to and love for something harmful to something positive. And you know, when mm -hmm. I was a kid, uh, my, my brother and I we used to build plastic models and I'd always get to a point where um, it, was, it would exceed my, my skill level and I'd crush it or I'd put a firecracker in it or I don't know what I would do with it. And so when I got when I got clean, I went to, I went to, I went to the hobby shop and I got a model and I got to that exact same point. And I threw the model away, went back to the hobby shop, got another model, got to the exact same point, threw that model away. And at this time I had a paid internship. And so I got another model and I worked on it every single day and every before I went to work and every night after I got off work and I finished it. And then I discovered, lo and behold, I got that same ritual from using drugs from actually buying paint. <laughs> I mean, in fact, there's a there's a there's a, a store and they sell this brand of Japanese paint. And so the ritual that I, I'd always have is I'd buy a bottle, one bottle at a time. As I left the store, I'd open the bottle and I'd smell it. And I got that exact same rush mm. that I used to get from scoring drugs. Happy to say I don't, I don't indulge in that behavior at all anymore. That was really addictive. I, I didn't see it at the time, but because um, helping paint is certainly <laughs> no. This is this was this was a non-toxic paint. This particular oh, paint. Oh, okay. I wasn't no. I wasn't. I wasn't getting high. It was. It, it was. It was the. It was mm. the ritual. Yes. The getting. Yes. Was the. I, I, um, but no, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, this makes me think of. I don't know if you've read Gaber Mate's A Realm of Hungry Ghosts. No. Uh, he was, I don't know if he, what he's doing now, but he at least was a physician who like helped out with like a lot of people who 
were homeless and had probably had, you know, severe mental illness, but definitely had like severe substance use and stuff like that. Um, and he talks about addiction and something he talks about in the book is his own addiction compulsion, uh, which was to buying vinyl, classical vinyl. And he said, I like, I know that doesn't sound like one, but like I was secretive. I was buying, you know, it was a huge amount of money. I barely listened to any of it. It took time away from my family. It took time away from like relationships and things like that. And it obsessed, like he would think about it, probably still like struggles with that. We can have that sort of obsessive quality with anything. And it sort of is about like, well, where can you gauge it? Is it, is it at a level that it's, you know, you're doing okay? Yeah, because I'm an obsessive person. This project I'm obsessive about and editing is in a very obsessive experience. So yeah, you have to just, you have to make sure that it stays in the love of the thing instead of just the compulsion around the thing. Mm. Well, we're sort of nearing the end and, you know, we've talked a lot about like your addiction and sort of harm and like relationships and how things have not gone well um (laughs) which is which is all very important but i always like to make sure that there's at least space for the more positive interactions with our body if that is present what what are some ways that you are there ways that you have found that you enjoy your body or doing things that make you feel good I guess you were saying specifically you prefer the way you feel when you're not on these drugs do you talk about that oh well the the three things come to mind first of all is is, uh riding bicycles Mm -hmm. because when I'm in Chicago's totally flat Mm -hmm. totally flat so a straight block is a free wheel that has one tooth increments, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. So everybody in, everybody in Chicago can spin. Everybody is strong. There used to be a, a, a set of hills called the ravines. And that was always, there's a ride, there's a ride from Chicago to Fort Sheridan back, 50 miles round trip. And like I said, 98% of the ride was totally flat. So we would all be going 23, 24, 25 miles an hour, just flying. And then you get to the ravines mm. and it's, just, it's, it's the only selection, you know, hills. And moving here, when I moved here in 1992, I was on a racing team. I, the racing, I wanted to ride on this racing team. I said, okay, well, before you join our team, you have to go ride with us. And uh, I was riding a Schwinn Latour with a kryptonite lock and a rack. And I still had my gearing from Chicago, straight block. And I was the largest cyclist. I got dropped at the bottom of every hill. I just chased back, you know. And so there is a component of cycling in the Northwest. You cannot get anywhere here Mm. without without hills. Mm -hmm. And you have to embrace suffering. (laughs) And it's, it's the same with the inclement weather. 
the the fendered winter bike is a thing here. It's it's not in in Chicago, mm. but I mean here. I remember one time I went for a ride in Chicago and it was so cold my water bottle froze solid, and we turned around. But here there really is no excuse for not exercising all year outdoors. I I always laugh when I see people like on a treadmill because uh, the body is a shell. You are not your body. Your body is not you. Your body is part of you. And unless you stress the shell, you're not really aware of it. And that's, mm-hmm. I, I, I believe that that is, it's our job to, to take care of our bodies and to use them. So I ride bicycles. Mm-hmm. I embrace suffering. Number two, I play music. I'm in a band. And I also... I'm doing this week as monthly klezmer jam. I love klezmer music. Took up music as an adult and learning to read music. Music is I, 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 someone said that music, that music and language are probably the highest expressions of of of, of the of the human potential. Mm. I, I would say music, language, and science. But I I was in the in the tuba section of a, of a of a band for a couple of years, and you are reading the music. You are interpreting, you are playing all at once. You are matching your section mates. Your section is matching the section next to it. It's um, the the instrument that I chose, which is, I like large instruments. I play the tuba, sousaphone, string bass. I thought that the reason that tuba parts were simple was because the instrument was easy to play. And all instruments are easy to play poorly. Mm. Um, the reason the tuba parts were rudimentary is because the instrument's hard to play, hard to play well. And uh, I build plastic models. I, after I finished that one model, I never stopped. I, I, I think it's one, it's one of the best ways to interact with a child. I had mentors who gave me their undivided attention. And they said, well, this is how you do this. This is how we solve that. And I had their undivided attention. Two of my children have been the best junior at this uh, modeling event. One of them was back-to-back two years in a row. I, I think it's the mentorship is something I think that's falling kind of by the wayside mm-hmm. in, the, in, our, in our technology-obsessed generation. Mentoring sharing your skills with somebody else mm-hmm. uh, is is uh, really important. Mm. I think something else I wanted to ask uh, was, or note, was that I sense right now in your life that, you know, you are going to be divorced soon. You've been married for 15 years you're deciding to not be coupled right now. Uh, And currently you're living in your sister's house. She has a hoarding problem. There's not a lot of space for you. And you're trying to figure out your next step. You are are entering or about to enter more spaciousness, right? You've been sort of confined in certain ways Or, or that's the way that I see it. What, you say you don't have a lot of time to waste. You don't have time to waste. What do you think you're going to do in this 
new chapter. Well, first thing, first thing is I'm gonna I'm going to make peace with anxiety mm. because uh, part of being a couple is that there are things that you do as a couple, and there are things that you do for the couple. And I I I think that my wife and I took for granted the strengths that we each brought mm. to our marriage. And we also, I think, uh, took for granted how much support that we provided each other. Mm. And um, I've always had anxiety. I'm going to have an accident. Mm. I'm going to be late. I don't have accidents. I'm not late. I'm going to run out of money. I don't run out of money. I'm not really paying my bills. I pay my bills. Um, I'm because because those things were set it and forget it for so many years, and now it's my responsibility. I'm constantly hearing, "Am I saving any money by going down the block where gas is fifteen cents cheaper? Things cost what they cost, you know." And um, I have to. Uh, Remember, have you seen have you seen as good as it gets with Jack Nicholson and Helen Helen Hunt? And there's a scene where he's off his meds, and he goes to his analyst, and it's not his appointment, and his analyst is shooing him out. And as he's being shooed out, he looks at somebody else and says, "What if this is as good as it gets?" You know. And um, I, I I think my ADD and my anxiety are managed as effectively as I can manage them. Uh, and so I have to live with it mm. and and return to a spiritual practice. You know, um, I uh, was, in, was introduced to unprogrammed Quaker worship 25 years ago. And basically it's, a, it's, it's an unguided meditation. You mm. people meet in a circle, you meditate for an hour in total silence. If somebody feels the need to, sp to speak, they stand up, they say their piece, they sit down. At the end, everybody introduces themselves to each other. They break for coffee. There's no proselytizing. There's no seeking of donations. For a person with ADD like myself, my brain actually stops. And I have a deficit in uh, being able to... to uh, I mean, I easily exhaust myself every single night. Because I need to be stimulated until until I'm exhausted, so I'll mm. just be on my phone, scrolling through Apple News, not the product product <laughs> promotion, but un, un, until I've you, 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 you there is no end. Mm -hmm. it's, it's 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 like trying to explain to a kid playing a video game. You know what? You are not going to defeat Fortnite. Therefore, it doesn't matter if you stop now or if you stop in five minutes. So why don't you stop now? I haven't answered your question. Um, that, that's all right. I mean, you can go in the direction that you actually were interested in going in. Well, actually, you were talking about the Quaker stuff, and, and earlier you were talking about how this body is a shell and we are not our bodies. But then you also talk about, like, we have to, I don't remember the word you used, but exercise them or, like, make it so that we actually feel our bodies. Yeah, you're supposed to feel it. I mean... I'm supposed to feel my body. That's that's my belief mm -hmm. that <clears throat> I'm supposed to be aware that I'm in a shell and that I'm, you know, that was a movie, 23 grams. 
with isn't twenty three grams the idea that that's how that's how much the soul weighs, mm. and so when when the, when a, when a person passes, they're twenty three grams lighter than they were. Mm. A body a body is a a temple, mm. and I, I like to, I like to think that I'm uh, well the, the the circles under my eyes I look in the mirror belie that tell me that I'm not getting enough sleep that I and I know that I'm not getting enough sleep, uh, and that's because I had I, I had. Difficulty. I've got to be doing something, and sometimes you know, being at rest is doing something. Mm. Not making a decision is a decision. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, impulsivity for the you know for the for the addict. Mm. I mean, I I, I I mean, I have to go to the to the to the postal annex today, and there'll be a bunch of boxes, and I don't even know what they are, except that I ordered them. Mm. But you know. I'm still going to be a picture on the wall, whether I what what I do or what I don't do, what I accomplish or what I don't accomplish, what we what I figure out, what I don't figure out, and I am the one who who gives meaning to my life. Mm. And you know, I I think I have a life worth living, and I have things to contribute. Still. Mm. Well, yeah, you were talking about the importance of mentorship as well, and. I really, I really value mentorship. I value the way that I've gotten it. I value the way that I've been able to give it and something that I'm always seeking for as well. Mm. There's so many more things that I would love to explore, but uh, my, my sort of last question that I always ask is just, is there anything else that you think is important for you to say or yeah, anything you want to leave people with? Yeah, I, I, I guess I, 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 I've, alluded, I've alluded to this in, in conversations with you uh, separate from this. Um, part of my being uncoupled is to, um, I'm, in, I'm, 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 I'm interested in other uh Try a different way. I'm 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 interested in in exploring kink. That's the easiest way to the easiest way yeah. to put it, um, and what that means to me, and what that means, and that's just the avenue that I'm headed down. Mm. And uh, I don't have any advice. <laughs> uh, if, if I guess the only if, if there's any advice I would have in part is is uh, is, is I need to examine my shame mm. and the stories that I tell myself about being defective or it being wrong or mm. what happens between consulting adults is just that. Yeah. Yeah. Just open something big right at the end. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, <laughs> it's good. No, it's well, good. Well, I... It, I would be more than willing to uh, close this can of worms uh, <laughs> that I just opened in, in, in part two. So yeah, no, um, I would I would love to do that, and I think kink is actually something that um, I I've talked a little bit about, and I remember at the time being like, oh no, not this, <laughs> because, and it's because it is something 
that I've explored, I explore and have such conflicting feelings about. And I think, I think you and I are both in that place of like, okay, how do you do this? How do you engage with sexuality? How do you possibly engage with kink in a way that is non-exploitive? And the word I think I would add is, how do you do it in a way that is caring for everyone involved? So I I look forward to talking about that more next time we chat. Well, I look forward to having something to say about it too. (laughs) Yeah. Since it's, I mean, it's, it's, since it's been happening mostly in my head. Mm. Um, So much of it does, right? Well, Sex is a very personal thing, um, and well, duh. And so much of sex in, is, is involves trust. In fact, all sex starts with trust. I mean, for me, and uh, negotiating kink seems to involve more trust than anything. I have mm. yet to experience. So yeah. in that sense, it's happening in my head. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, we'll just end this with a to be continued. To be continued. Um, thank you so much for wanting to be on this. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Absolutely. And if you are drinking anything, just pause. Well. Yeah, no, I have that. I have a few people who are like, I'm going to make this the loudest thing ever. Like as we pause and are all silent, they're like.